Hey there, I'm Amanda Soler, founder of SoulfulLiving.com and creator and host of this podcast, Soulful Connections. This podcast offers a way to connect the dots between the lives we're living and the lives we want to live. You'll get to meet or get to know better people in our community who are willing to share what makes their lives meaningful, what brings them joy, and even how they've overcome obstacles that have been thrown their way. So find a cozy spot or keep driving and doing what you're doing, and let's connect. Connection. I'm here today with Irv Hall, who is a business consultant, Olympian, guitarist, poet, <laughs> great business advisor. I steal business advice from him regularly and a friend. So welcome, Irv. Well, thank you, Amanda. Now, can you describe your business? What is, what is your business name and what do you do? Well, I, I'm actually a small business um, advisor, consultant, um, and lots of times people say, well, what, what kind of companies? And I'm going, you know, small businesses, their issues, their challenges are pretty much the same. They don't really vary. So it doesn't matter what business you're in, you're going to have the same kinds of challenges. You know, um, one, of the, one of the obvious challenges they have is it's a growing business. Um, it's, it's really perilous because people expect that the first person they hire and people subsequent to that are going to be the same, and they're not. And what happens is typically the first person they hire is like a relative. You know, they, they come in early, they stay late, um, they you know, uh, really work hand in hand. By the time they're ready to hire other people and the business is growing, from then on, that's not who they're hiring. They're hiring people who have different viewpoints about that, and they're really not set up to manage them. And so they're really not set up for that. And um, a lot of times they'll they'll start growing, they'll get to that point, and all of a sudden they have to backtrack. And a lot of times they will go back, they will take that business back down so that it's where they can handle it. When really, if they anticipated some of those changes, um, they could keep growing that business and manage it. But that's that's one of the pitfalls of, of you know being a small business and trying to grow that business from single proprietor to oh, one where multiple people are you know, working in the business. So we were talking earlier about how you've lived so many places. What, why is that? Can you kind of describe your business journey to me? How, where did you start in business and how did um, you get here? I started out as a regional marketing coordinator for Geno's, which was a fast food um, company, um, hamburgers and chicken. And it was actually a marvelous company. It was in early in the fast food days. Um, and actually they were in this area before McDonald's. And so they were more entrenched in McDonald's for a while. And, and obviously McDonald's has much larger marketing budget and, and was was entrenching into the area. And uh, Geno's was competing pretty well. Um, they had done some things that were originally much, much better. They had inside seating while McDonald's was drive ups. They had chicken because they had Kentucky Fried Chicken, their largest franchisee of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, so they had a better diverse menu. Um, and so it was, it was, it was a very good company. One of the challenges I think they ran into was they had such early success that they really weren't cautious in terms of how they started trying to grow the business. So they tried to expand out from here to California 
not recognizing mm -hmm. there's going to be differences. Uh, they try to grow up in the Midwest. Um, what they should have done is grown this business, you know, kind of consecutively out of this area. Um, sort of what like Wawa is going, because Wawa would have the same issues. If if you took Wawa and put them in California, nobody would know what they were, and that's right. what happened. You know, they they plucked it out of here, put it in California, which was one of their expansion markets, and people didn't know what it was. You know, you have Gino's as a as an Italian name. People thought it was an Italian restaurant. Oh, right. You had you had inside seating when no other fast food restaurants had inside seating. So people were walking in in, in very dressy clothes, thinking it was an evening place, and so it, it was it was really a very yeah. interesting learning lesson for them. You know, um, they also had Russell Steakhouses, and um, eventually I became um, marketing director for the Russell Steakhouses. And we were in the middle of a um, explosion of uh, expansion across the country. And there was a very good plan for that expansion, um, theoretically anyway. And when I, when I took it over, I'm looking at their building plan and I'm looking and going, well, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand the logic behind it. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of logic behind it. So, um, I went to the agency and said, look, we, we need a better plan. You know, let's talk about how we put together a better plan for this expansion. And essentially what we did is we put together a top 50 market plan. Um, we put, we looked at eating out indexes. we looked at um, saturation. And basically we came up with a plan that said, okay, these are markets that we need to build in. These are markets that we need to build now or skip. And these markets, we just skip all together, you know, in the process. It was a very good plan. And um, our, our purpose was to get to enough saturation so that we would have, um, could could use network advertising, because spot advertising or local market advertising is too expensive. And that was the goal. And so we put together a plan with markets that said, here's how we're going to build them. Here's where we're going to build them. Um, here's the time frame for them. And here's how we get to national um media. And I think what happened was we, we had a meeting, they loved the plan. Um, they said we could do it. And I basically said, look, this is a go, no go plan. If we can do it, that's fine. If we can't do it, we need a different plan, which meant we had to concentrate on areas and, and build out, not try to stretch out and go to national uh, advertising. And unfortunately, what happened was, I, I think, I don't know, a couple of weeks after that plan, the controller stopped me in the hallway and said, "We love your plan, but and we can't, but we can't execute the whole plan. But we're going to do it anyway." And my point was, "That's not right. going to work." And so a after they decided to go ahead with it, I said, "You know what?" I, and that's when I started my, put out my resume, and I went from there to Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I was a marketing um, regional marketing director for. Kentucky Fried Chicken had the Northeast region, which included New York, um, Jer New Jersey. Uh, we also had Norfolk, Virginia, um, Pittsburgh, and I think one other market. And so I moved out there. And uh, New York was a tough market because it was uh, it had been declining for, for years, actually. And, but it was just too expensive for them to withdraw from the market. And so I uh, was able to tackle New York um, in the process. Now, one of the problems or challenges I had in New York was that because the market was in New York, they just gave us the national co-op agency at the time. So the national co-op agency was the agency handling the media for New York City. And I had a problem with that because I knew that that they really weren't gonna pay a lot of attention to New York and New York's issues because they were looking at the national co-op media. And so, and I had a very good um, regional director. And so we both went to national uh, headquarters and said, give us this market, you know? And we explained why we needed it, where we wanted it. Um, and they said, yes. So once they said yes, we hired a, a, a small local 
New York agency and very good people. It's called Mingo Jones Gilmanel. And we started working the market. Um, we recognized that, that in New York, we had to be a lot more location specific because in New York, you don't have freestanding Kentucky Fried Chicken stores. You have inline Kentucky Fried Chicken stores. So, you know, a person could be come to work, get out of the subway. And if their path doesn't go left and they only go right, which is what they do, you know, they never know that that store is there. So we started doing things like directional advertising. We started getting subway toppers that say, you know, New York Kentucky Fried Chicken stores right down the street. Um, the other challenge we had is, is the uh, marketing for Kentucky Fried Chicken at that time was meal deals. All they were doing was discounted meals and trying to boost sales over last year. And one, it, that wasn't working too great in New York. Um, and, and two, we, we all felt that intrinsic advertising should be enough. The product was good, people liked it. Um, and so I charged Mingo Jones and Gilmore to come up with an intrinsic campaign for the product. You know? um, and we worked at it. We were still doing this directional, but they came out with this product that they really came out with. We do chicken, right? And that was superb because essentially it was answering a quest. It was answering an issue. We knew that people liked it. Um, all the other fast food restaurants were coming out with chicken as, as kind of a competition. Um, and really what that whole concept told people was, you know what, if you're going to have chicken, you might as well have great chicken. And that was what the We Do Chicken Right campaign told them. Um, we started running that campaign. And just to kind of in a comparison, when we read, when we did meal deals, we were getting maybe a 5% lift in sales. Um, and that's with, that's with margin erosion. We ran We Do Chicken Right. We got an pure 18% jump in business right away. I mean, wow. 18% and it was solid. Um, and we were out, you know, uh, sales were way bigger than, than anywhere across the country. Um, it probably took the national co-op a month later. Wow. They were running as national and it ran nationally for 10 years. Uh, That's so interesting. So it's almost like implying everybody else does it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we do it right. Right. So, so that was pretty good. Um, and then my next, my next thing I had to do, and I can't believe that they gave me a hard time, but, but Pittsburgh is one of the markets. And, and again, it was a market that wasn't doing very well. It was a company on stores and Pittsburgh is a very unique market. Um, anybody from Pittsburgh really recognizes that if you're not from Pittsburgh, you, you don't understand it. And so I, I looked at it and said, you know what, I can't break through with this national advertising that they're doing. But if I could customize it, you know, get enough, I could I could increase the reach and, and frequency of the, of the campaign. So again, I had to go to, you know, Kentucky and, and ask for the market, you know, give me the market, let me hire a small agency, um, let's see what we can do. And um, they finally said, yes, they gave it to me and, uh, the president started calling me every week going, when are we going to turn this market around? I'm going, <laughs> so it was really funny. Um, I couldn't afford the, the well, New York, uh, Pittsburgh has some unique marketing that has these huge radio stations that are, have reach of a television station. Um, everybody knows in Pittsburgh, they know KDKA, we couldn't afford them. I could afford the second um, best radio station. And that's what we went to. And they had these two disc jockeys in the morning who were very popular. And so my strategy was to give it to them. So essentially we would meet and I would tell them exactly what we're trying to accomplish from a product standpoint. They would take it and come back with a commercial. And it was very interesting because I would listen to the commercial. And I'm going, are you sure this is right? And they go, you know, this is right. This will work. Um, and I knew what I was trying to do. I was trying to get them to, you know, um, localize it. So my job was to make sure it could get through legal. And so what, so I did and I send it in and I knew I'd get a call. <laughs> I knew I'd get a call and they, they go, um, we don't 
think you could should word this commercial. I go, well, is it legal? Any legal issues? They go, no, but you know, and I go, well, you know, your job's done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when it passed legal, and obviously they went and sent it into, uh, you know, went to uh, the senior management, and they let it go, and same thing. Market started turning around um, because again, it, it was it was customized. Um, it had more penetration power at the same cost level. And so we had that success. And so I ended up actually getting three or four markets. I was the only regional marketing director that had direct control of agencies in the marketplace. I mean, it was, it was really good. And they wanted me to actually move to Kentucky from New York. I wasn't sure that that was a good trade-off. <laughs> so, um, it just so happened that that I got an interview at uh, at Citibank um, and an opportunity to, you know, uh, move into a whole different you know, career path, and and that's what I did. And so I took that and ended up moving to Citibank um, as a regional. Um, well, actually, Citibank at the time had had five basic regions, and they had each region had its own. It was really autonomous even though we, we worked together for the overall New York advertising, but we were really autonomous and we could do things kind of a little different, you know? And so, um, and my region was Long Island, essentially, which was the youngest region in the area. And that was a challenge because in Long Island, Citibank was not a household word. In New York, it was, and in a couple of the other boroughs, it was. But in Long Island, no, we were the new bank in the area. And so um, we had to do things that were a little bit different. And we had to um, really focus on, um, at the time, CD business, because that was what was easiest to get. You know? And um, it was very, uh, we, what we did is, is uh, I came up with a promotion with, um, that we did with uh, Macy's and essentially what we did is is uh, we, we couldn't we couldn't legally at the time give more interest for CDs but what we worked out with Macy's is is that um, they would give us gift certificates for free samples of their top perfumes so they went to their perfume people and yes. got these big samples essentially and so what we were able to do is and, and actually those samples were, were really um big bonuses i mean some of them were 50 bucks wow. you know in terms of, yeah. of you know perfumes not cheap and so we um we worked out this deal where we do the advertising for them and we promote for our cds um and we give out these these certificates and they'd go in this Macy's and they'd get one of these sample bottles. I mean, they didn't know what they were getting, but they got a sample and it was extremely valued. And that really helped us um, to increase our both, you know, new CDs and retention customers of CDs, which was very important for us as, as, a, as a new business like that. And um, and that worked really well. You know, that was a really good promotion. It, it messed up some of the regions, especially Queens, because we sort of share borders there. Um, but we allowed them to take some of them, you know, when, when it happened. So that was really fun. It was it was learned a lot working with uh, with the bank and you know promoting it in that process. And, and then I moved to St. Louis. Decided to move to the mortgage division okay. and ended up moving to St. Louis with the mortgage business. Uh, and um, and eventually from there moved to uh, Norwest, which now which which purchased. Uh, Wells Fargo and worked with their, that mortgage business. And that was actually, we were the largest um, mortgage business in, in the country at that time. Um, and got to work with, with growing that business for the, uh, for them in, in that process. You know, what strikes me as you're talking, considering the fact that, you know, you started, in the business world, young, there was like this one thread that has kind of gone through your journey. And that is this two things, 
tenacity, tenacity, Mm -hmm. tenaciousness. I know how to say that. (laughs) And confidence. I mean, to me, it takes a lot of confidence to say, this is the plan. I really believe in it. And to go forward and then also to put your resume out and to move on. Those things take a tremendous amount of perseverance and confidence. Where is that? Where does that come from? Well, you know, I, I was an athlete. I was competing. Um, I focused on, on, you know, working through getting better, understanding, you know, what what made sense. Um, and, you know, you learn so much in, in terms of, of focusing at that compete competition level. Um, and, and so when I was competing, I mean, or getting there, I mean, part of this process was, you know, a focus on how, how do I get better in my last race? You know, not, not resting on that laurel of, you know, you're pretty good. You did this. It was, no, it is, it is the constant focus of how do I get better? What do I need to do? Um, and, and when you do that, you can, you can figure that out. You can figure out that, okay, I, I can do this. I can work on this and, and, and get better. Um, and it also gives you, I think one of the other things that competing as an athlete gives you is it really does help you to focus. You, you, you get this, this ability to focus on the issue at hand, the problem at hand. Um, and then, you know, and when you can issue and you, and you can isolate and work on those problems, you can find solutions. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's when there's too much of a noise that it's hard to do that. And so I really learned how to do that focus where I focus. And so, um, and I became really task oriented to, to a large degree. And it has some positives and some negatives to it, but that task focus um, allows me to, as I switch positions or jobs or things, um, I could really um, focus in and, and, and get, get that job done in that process. And so, um, and the other thing was um, the, the one, one of the great things that, that, that my work at Geno's and being in the fast food industry at that particular time is that that, that industry was evolving very quickly. And so um, <clears throat> unlike the, the classic marketing process, which takes, uh, takes years for products life cycle, we could go through life cycle every six months because the business was evolving that quickly and changing that quickly. Um, for example, you know, when I first started, people thought fast food was kind of throwaway. Um, and, you know, and early on, they figured it didn't matter where they went as long as it was clean, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so that was the first iteration of how people were making selections, you know? If it looked if it looked clean, they were saying, "Okay, I'll go in there." And then the next iteration that didn't would happen was, "Okay, they wanted to know that it was quality," you know. So it was went from cleanliness to, "Okay, this is a real food group. I'm looking for quality." And then it was quality service. So it it evolved very fast, and so you really had to to have your pulse on the marketplace um, in a very short period of time, and so. I, I, the experience level from a, from a marketing um, understanding business um, gave you really good background to the point where actually I was, I had really kind of more experience in, in, a, in a lot of sense, even when I went to Kentucky Fried Chicken and especially the banks, the banks were really not very advanced in, in some of their marketing techniques. So, um, I could feel a lot more confident in the banks when I went there to understand. Okay, they don't, they haven't really experienced this aspect yet. Um, so that was that was very helpful um, in that process. You referenced being an athlete, and I referenced at the start of this <laughs> podcast that you were an Olympian. Which I'm just going to tell you, I know that you're an Olympian not because you told me. I had already known you for many years. I bumped into a a mutual acquaintance who said, hey, did you know that Irv um, 
won a medal in the Olympics? And I was like, no, <laughs> he didn't tell me this ever, which if I had that experience, I would of course be wearing my medal around my neck and I would be bragging endlessly. I brag endlessly about you being an Olympian. <laughs> so what can you tell me about that? You were an athlete. How did it start and how did it get to the Olympics? Uh, well, um, actually, it, it, it started in my junior year in high school, essentially, because my first two years, I was actually still working after school. And then my, my job changed and I decided to go out for track. And I was a little tall, so they said, why don't you try hurdles? And so I, I knew nothing, actually. And I started out, and um, at, at the time, I think we, we had basically five people competing or five in, in each event. And so we had an individual person in hurdles, and then we had a relay team. And I was part of the relay team. And so working to kind of get better um, in that process. And I think that's when it started first understanding that I, I had this task focus that I could work on it and look at, okay, what do I need to do to get better uh, in this process? And I was able to move up to probably the, the third person in, in the, um, or number three in the team relative to, to hurdles. And um, I, I remember that the first year we, we got to the uh, city championships and um, I was the number three hurdles. There were three hurdles in the, uh, us in the Catholic League. And I was so nervous because, you know, um, like I said, I was number three, and but we had a good team. And um, um, I survived that, you know, and we ended up winning that year. Um, the next year, um, what, what happened was during the interim um, winter, I decided to run cross country being terrible at this, not having very much stamina. I was not very good at it, but I did it. And it really built up my stamina and my strength for um, for competing. Um, the other two uh, hurdlers in front of me, they played football. And um, our, our top hurdler was actually one of the best hurdlers in the city at the time. And he got hurt in football. So, um, starting out, you know, we assumption was that my good friend John Jackson would take over, and you know, and I would then anchor the, the relay. Um, but you know, because I ran cross country, I was a lot stronger, um, and it helped me get quicker. And I ended up, you know, now moving into the number one spot. And it was interesting for me because. Um, I didn't know who I was running against. I didn't really pay attention to it. Again, it was the focus. Yeah. How do I get better? You know, what do I need to do? And so I, I had no idea who I was running against. I was just, I was, well, I did. I was running against me. Perfect. I was running against me um, in that process. And so it didn't, it didn't really concern me who I was running against from a competitive standpoint because I was running against me. Um, and so I kept winning and kept winning um, and um, ended up undefeated that year. And it was, it was fortuitous that, that actually I got recruited by Villanova because the other two hurdlers, because they were known entities, they had been recruited already, you know, long time ago. I mean, the, the year before, um, you know, I, Villanova didn't come to, to me until the end of the season, actually. Um, and I, as I said, most schools, even if they wanted to, probably had didn't have scholarships available. And so I got a scholarship to Villanova, um, which was, uh, like I said, very, very, uh, I was very fortunate <laughs> for that opportunity. And then at, at Villanova, um, I was hurdling and I was also became the best sprinter um, at the time. And that that's an interesting story in and of itself um, because everybody in Villanova thought I was always fast. Um, I was not. Um, I, I was fortunate to 
to hear over here, coach in high school at the end of the year, talk about how, you know, you run faster if you run relaxed. And I didn't really focus on it. I said, well, let's see if I, if I can relax and sprint, what happens? And I found out that I was getting a little bit faster, a little bit faster. And, and I kind of worked on this technique. And by the time actually I started running at Villanova, I became fast because I had better technique um, in the process. And I was stronger too, but um, it was really understanding how to run um, in that process. And it's, it, it's funny, I, I watch football games and, and I watch football players chasing after someone and then they'll stop and they'll jump. And part of it, a lot of that is they have bad technique. They're, they're running in first gear. You know, people don't understand that your legs are gears and the way you use your legs and, and the height changes gears for you. And um, players that run in the first gear, just like if you ran a car in first gear, yeah, it's fast, but at some point, <laughs> yeah. it's, you don't compete against somebody who runs in the second gear, you know, and it's so simple to do. It's easier to do. It's relaxed, but you know they don't understand it, and so it, it, it's amazing. There's so many metaphors for life and what you've just said. You know what I mean? Right. You relax. You run faster. Focus on your performance and not everybody else's. You right. know. Right. So then, how did you get from what happens? How do you get into the Olympics? Well, Olympics is really basically Olympics. Once you reach a qualifying oh, time, so everything has a qualifying time weight, size, you know, um, in the Olympics. And you get, you, once you reach that qualifying time in the uh, uh, Olympic year, you get invited. I see. And so for the Olympics, it's or track and field. It's pretty simple. It's elimination. You, yeah. you run, you know, yeah. trials and yes. quarters and sim until you pare down to the last 10. Yes. And they take the top three. So you run, or you did high hurdles, which involves running from what I understand now, <laughs> <laughs> in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico mm -hmm. City, yep. you garnered the silver medal. Correct. Um, it was a historic Olympics. It was, um, I don't remember the person's name. Two people. Who? What were their names that gave the Black Power salute on the podium? Uh, Tommy One, Smith. Yeah. And uh, John Carlos. John Carlos. John Carlos and Thomas Smith. Um, that was a really dramatic Olympics. Yes, it was. And there you were, a medalist. It's how was that for you? What was that experience like? What did it feel like? Also, I should mention that you're African American. And um, that had to play some role in your feelings about it. But yet you've just told me you're so task oriented. What was your feeling about the whole thing? And how did you navigate through that? Well, obviously, this was all, all new. Um, right. And it was a tremendous time in, in America. I mean, you're talking about, you know, two assassinations that happened oh, yeah. right before the Olympics um, that were, were pretty... Um, traumatic in and of themselves, you know, Martin Luther King and, yeah. and, and so, um, you know, John Kennedy. So, right. I mean, not kind of Bobby Kennedy. So it was, it was, so you had those things going on. Yeah. Um, you had um, some people advocating that uh, the black athletes should uh, buy, you know, boycott the Olympics right. uh, at the time, which was, was, um, not not really a good option uh, in the process, um, and so it was it was just it was just a lot of turmoil uh, going on, and there was some discussion about you know having some level of protest demonstration, you know among the black athletes, but that really kind of fell through. Um, the Olympic uniform is like a uh, military uniform; you can't put on or take off anything um, from that uniform that's not official. You know, so just, just not allowed. 
uh, in the process. And so, um, you know, so once that happened, you know, the issue of, of a protest sort of kind of diminished um, until Tommy Smith and John Carlos got on the stand. Um, and you notice it wasn't planned as well because they had only one pair of gloves. So one wore oh, black that? right hand. Okay, I thought that was part of it. Hand. No, yeah. no, no. Um, and so they did that. And that was traumatic for the, for the, for the Olympics because of the fact that uh, uh, Avery Brundage was very <laughs> um, um, strict. Okay. In fact, um, after that, two things happened. One, um, Tommy and John gone the next day. They shipped them out the next day. Wow. Um, the process got them out of there. They pulled the whole team together and basically said, look, any, any other demonstration of any kind, and we're pulling the U.S. team. Now, whether they would do that or not, who knows? But nobody, nobody was going to jeopardize anybody else's opportunity Right. You know, in the Olympics, and that sort of shut down anything that could have happened. Yeah. Could have happened in the process. Um, and one of the interesting things that almost happened, almost happened, that was kind of interesting, is Charlie Green kind of pulled up in, in the hundred meters, and they weren't sure he could run in the four by one relay. Um, and because they shipped John Carlos and Tommy Smith out, I was the next fastest person there. So if Charlie couldn't run, I could, would have been part of that. Wow. Of that, team. Yeah. that would have been lots of fun. Yeah. But of course, Charlie decided that he was okay. And then he won, you know, he ran and, and it was, it was, you know, so it was, but we had a lot of outstanding athletes in, in 68. It was, yeah. it was just incredible. So it's the strongest U.S. men's team ever in the history of the Olympics. Wow. You know, some people, when they have something that's so defining, like an Olympic medal, or you know, a huge success uh, in whatever, as a in the arts or in the military, they don't always make that transition to the next part of their life. Like you seem to have successfully transitioned from something that was so positive and and garnered so much positive attention into business, which you are obviously passionate about. Um, was that hard? Was it hard to go from having such success and surrendering that and moving into another arena? Well, two, two things I, I, would, I would say to that is, is one, athletic success is, is transitory. You know, unless you do something that is truly, um, truly, I don't know, earth shattering, you know, um, the next person that is there to take your place, you know, somebody else is there to take your place. Um, and even, even record holders. I mean, I, I was a world record holder, but I knew that you too, that, that, that somebody <laughs> yeah. was going to eclipse that, you know, yes. at some point in time. So, so it, it really isn't something that you hold on to, um, in that process. So I understood that. And the second thing is I remember I said task focus. So task focus moves me from, if I move from this to another task, that other task becomes the focal point and the, and the old task kind of is behind me. You know, it's not that I don't appreciate it um, again, but the new task now is the focus. It's the, you know, it's the, how do I get better in this new task? How do I manage this in this process? And so for me, that, that wasn't very hard. You know, I, I know that some, I know some of the athletes really did have a problem with that because when you first come back from the Olympics, my gosh, you could, you, you, you're invited to so many banquets and, and performances. I mean, people send you plane tickets to just show up, you know, you don't even have to do anything. And I did a couple of those. Um, but some, some of our athletes that I knew thought that was going to be their life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is going to last forever. Right. And I would think they, and they got pretty bummed out when they figured out that, whoa, you know, I went from from being highly recognized to hardly recognized yeah. uh, in that process. And so for me, again, you know, the task focus really helped me 
yeah. you know, just move on and, and, and not even look back and worry about it, you know, in that process. So where in this whole journey did you marry your wife? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, when did you have time? <laughs> well, actually, once, once I stopped competing, you know, um, your, your time got freed up. Because remember, we were amateurs, you know, yeah. and so um, it was really challenging to to continue to run and practice. Um, I'm going to give you an example. Um, my, my day was I'd go to work as, as normal, you know, get there at 830, leave at 536. I'd have to uh, change and go to a track, you know, yeah, do a workout. You know, in the process. Now it's what? Totally um, different today. Seven thirty, eight o'clock now. Wow. Um, I was single, living at home, and you go home, fix dinner, <laughs> crazy, and go to bed, and then you're back out there, and then the weekends you're running, you're traveling. You know, you're yeah. either getting a plane or a car or a bus, and um, you know, going someplace and running coming back and starting it all over again. So it, it's really tough to keep that regimen going, you know? Um, and I did that up until um, right before 72, I was already running. In fact, um, I had an injury actually, and that, that, that took me out for a little while, like took me out for like six, seven months. And then I had to kind of rebuild up again. And unfortunately, right before the, the um, Olympic trials, I had a muscle injury and was really kind of saying I could push this, go it. And then I figured, you know what? <laughs> right. It's enough's enough. You yeah. Know? And that's when I decided, okay, I'm not, not going to run anymore. And then how did you meet Gloria? Is it Gloria, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was it then in that transition period after you stopped running? After or, I stopped running. Okay. After okay. I stopped running more normal life <laughs> a more normal life so you met and you got married and then what was your son and your wife just part of all of that travel as yes, you were traveling exactly. they were all in just fact, in fact that's when we first moved to transition from philadelphia to new york working for Kentucky fried chicken okay and actually my son was born in connecticut okay you know, where we first you know relocated to uh, in that process so we went from connecticut to new york I lived in New York seven years, and then we transitioned to the uh, mortgage business in St. in St. Louis. Then went to uh, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, and then came back here, um, working for um, my um, former boss was running a company here, and it was really interesting. He recruited me not for marketing, but to run HR um, for his business, and it was really kind of interesting because you know I. I hadn't run HR before. I managed a lot of, of you know, marketing groups and, and groups. And essentially, what he said was, "Look, um, I don't, I don't need somebody. We got, we got HR people. Um, what I need somebody is who can really meld HR with the business uh, in that process." And so, after lots of interviews with both HR people and all his senior managers, um, I took that job and came. Uh, head of HR, you know, the VP of HR for this com for the company, and it was really it was really interesting because they were the company was about to embark on this ex this explosion in terms of of hiring, and um, and I only learned of this because I went and interviewed each of the managers, and one manager started talking about you know this could happen, and the numbers were astronomical. We would go from you know um, probably. I don't know, less than 10 hires a month to 100 hires a month. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really going to be dramatic. And so what I did is I went back to my HR group and I said, hypothetically, <laughs> we need a plan. What would we do if this happened, if we went from this to this, you know? And after they sort of picked, fell off their chairs and sat back up, um, they came out with a really good plan said, okay, you know, how many more people will we hire? How much would we have to, you know, um, job out, you know? And so we came up with a really good plan, actually. It was, it was really workable. 
And um, when this explosion happened, it actually happened, you know, um, the first thing was they were going, oh my gosh. And I said, no, we got a plan. <laughs> you know? And um, the plan worked. It was, it was, was excellent, you know, in that process. And the, and the, not only that, but um, the fact that, oh, uh, oh, the other thing we did, I, I did, I think was, was really good was we were trying to hire people like crazy. The managers were crazy. They were busy. Um, and job descriptions. It's, it's really the manager's job to do the job descriptions because they know that job. And uh, my folks were complaining about the fact that we're not getting these job descriptions fast enough. So I said, you know what? Why don't we do it for them? You know, they're busy. We can do it faster than they can do it anyway. I said, we'll just do that. That's a, that's a new service we'll give them. We'll do their job descriptions for them. We started doing that. Um, and that that actually helped. So it helped them, helped us, because mm -hmm. we couldn't go do, we couldn't do a search without the job descriptions. So and as a result of that, the managers were really grateful and really gave us a seat at their table. So now we were in their major meetings all the time. And that was helpful because now we could figure out and help them do things that they never thought of, you know, um, things that, that, that they need to look ahead for. For example, um, you know, I have to sit down the manager and go, look, you're going to grow this department like this. This is going to expand a lot. I said, the manager you have there, can they handle this? You know, sometimes yes. And sometimes it was, no, I don't think so. I said, well, <laughs> if you don't think so, you see, we're going to have to start giving them real evaluations, not the evaluation that says you're doing a good job, but the evaluation that says the job is really here, not down here, you know, because um, otherwise they're going to resent you bringing somebody over them, you know, let them experience the whole thing, not just what they're doing. Right. And so we started doing that as well and resetting you know, how they did evaluations. Uh, and that really helped retain people. Um, it helped, you know, manage people who were going to get, you know, um, you know, overlaid because of the fact that, you know, we were, we were looking ahead again. And that really, you know, so we really became a partner to the business from an, from an HR standpoint and not just, you know, policemen. <laughs> you know, you are so passionate about business. You really have a love for it. You really do. Where do you think that's done? What is it that you love about it? What is it that makes you passionate about all of these different aspects of business? Well, you know, one of the things I, I think it is because I was very fortunate in that most people go through their business career in one area, you know, Mm -hmm. They're in sales or they're in marketing or they're right. this part or this part. I was fortunate in that I got to experience a wide variety of, of, of business um, challenges um, at, at a relatively good level. You know? So I was a national sales manager. You know? I had to put together, you know, national incentive plans uh, for, for that business. I had to help shape that business, um, ran HR, you know, ran marketing, um, ran sales promotion. And so I, I have a, a, a wide range of, of experiences that really um, provide me with confidence in, in the fact that, that I'm not guessing a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I, I can predict kind of What's going to happen? And and I really and I really like putting together kind of unique things and in, in that process. So unique promotions, like I said, you know, um, the promotion with with uh, Macy's was unique. You know, it was you know uh, in that process, and it was solving you know a problem that that we, that I had uh, in the process. So I enjoy solving these business challenges, uh, you know, in the process because that that's that's fun. You know, yeah, not just sitting back and going, oh, you know, but what really, is the last person? Just no. put in your time. You, 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 it seems like it allows you to use your ingenuity and your creativity and your people skills and it kind of puts it all together. Um, so, you know, I, we, we don't have time to get into 
how you're a woodworker and a poet <laughs> and <laughs> musician. So you'll have to be a guest again. But if you had to, um, I know you're also a coach. Um, you're a business coach, but you're also coaching girls track. Um, if you could kind of give a lesson to anybody just looking to live their best life and be their best self, what piece of advice do you think you would give <laughs> in two seconds or less? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I guess that's a great Taking question. your, you know, your experience. You know I, I guess, I guess the whole part is, is, Nothing is that serious for the most part. You got to be able to step back. You know, you got to be able to accept the fact that you know what I I I don't don't know everything. Um, I I have to you know listen. <laughs> listen yeah. is really important uh, in that process. Um, and you know, but you you got to have that focus. I mean, the good part about the focus is it really helps you. The bad part about the focus is you know sometimes you you. It, you you really it, it's harder to, to 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 spread that out sometimes right you know, in, in terms of that, that focus because you, you're focusing down so you know i'll have to move from this point to this point to this point to this point to be you know in a comfortable position um but you know that's that seems to work pretty yeah. well um, yeah that's awesome i i think you've given a lot of lessons I really do. I think that your life as a as a professional and as an athlete have similarities that people can really take forward and into their life. Um, and I, I just, one of my favorites is to really run your own race. I really do love that. So Irv, Irvin Hall, thank you so much for being a guest well, on my thank podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. And thank you so much to Billy Aronson who gifted me with his wonderful music and even coming up with the word connections for this podcast. Thanks to my bestie, Roseanne Griffiths. She serves as the official advisor and unofficial associate producer of this podcast. Thank you to all of my friends and family who let me bounce ideas off of them. And to you guys who listen Please let me know your thoughts, your ideas, your questions. You can reach me at soulfullife at gmail.com. That's S like solar, O-L-F-U-L-L-I-F-E at gmail.com.